The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. The third of the yamas, which is perhaps the most straightforward, the most easy to define of all of them, is called asteya. Insteya means theft, asteya means no theft. After recommending non-violence, the yogis also would say a harmonious way of living would be of living without theft. That means the yogis say if you earn your living, if you live your life by theft, deceit, robbery, misappropriation of other people's goods and so on, that is a wrong way which will eventually lead to a pitfall, which will eventually lead to a dead end. That is why the yogis would recommend stay out of theft. The story itself is of course very large, but the concept of theft is very clear to all of us. We live in such a materialistic world where everything is uh, actually running around property, material property, intellectual property, that everybody will know to define what is theft and where are the limits of it. We know very clearly in the kind of society where we live what means to misappropriate other people's goods, what, what means to take what is not clearly yours, what means to misuse, to destroy somebody else's property or things like this. So that is why I said that while with non-violence we had to investigate a lot of things and with truthfulness I had to explain to you the value of speech and the metaphysics of it, with Astea things are as clear <coughs> as they can get. That means no theft means no theft, period. It doesn't mean anything else. Of course, here we are also having the exaggerations. People who take it to the letter, people who exaggerate it absurdly, and people who infringe on it as well. But still the concept of no theft is so very beautifully clear. Definitely one of the things of it is definitely the karmic aspect. The yogis would say, if you steal, something equal would be stolen from you sooner or later. As smart as you think you are, every thief finds a bigger thief than himself, so basically you will not be able to escape this kind of equality or justice of the universe. One is the karmic thing, and somebody can say, oh, if I'm going to steal some money, this is going to solve, to sort out my problems because I'm in a dark hole, and so on. And the yogis say, well, you take now, but later you'll have to give it back anyhow, so think twice if you actually want to do, because there is nothing in this way which goes forever. Things are more complicated because it's not only the karma. If it would be a karma, then people could consider theft as a kind of loan. Ah, I'm stealing today, and one day when I'll have a lot of money, I will just give it to the poor, or I'll donate to somebody, and then I'll, like, pay it back. It is not quite as simple as that, as you are going to see. Of course, exaggerations are that some people say, would say, okay, there are many things which if I don't have them, then they would belong to you, they would belong to the others. So basically, whatever you grab would have belonged to someone else. So actually everything would be a kind of theft, so then it's better to have little, to have nothing, to own nothing. Others would infringe on this list. The most scandalous infringement on this uh, issue comes from that very controversial spiritual master of the 20th century that was Gurdjieff. 
Gurdjieff, born in Armenia, born in today's Russian Georgia, actually from an Armenian mother and a Greek father, uh, is one of the most controversial spiritual teachers of the 20th century, because although he was extremely advanced in spirituality and so powerful, he had a totally unorthodox behavior. He wanted to show that spiritual realization is not a matter of be looking like an angel or behaving in some way. He was actually reacting very much to the hypocrisy, to the kind of social hypocrisy where people would behave in all kind of phony and histrionic ways just to pretend that they are holy. So because of this, Gurdjieff was shocking in everything. For example, he was smoking big cigars, uh, he was drinking heavy vodka parties, he was not even a vegetarian, and his preferred office was a big cafe in the middle of Paris. He said, if you want to meet me, come at my office. My office is Café du Soleil, or, or whatever, in Paris. You know? So he was kind of provoking all the time. And this Gurdjieff was a heavy-duty guy. He was a man who worked a lot. He is, perhaps he is the only spiritual master that I have ever heard, who tried not to sleep, because he thought that sleep was a waste of time, and he wanted to do more activity. He was, besides teaching spirituality, he was doing two or three jobs in parallel, like importing and exporting Persian carpets from Persia, and things like this, because he wanted to be able to sustain himself and his spiritual activity financially. He didn't want to beg money from anybody or to do anything. So Gurdjieff was a real enterprising fellow, Really, I mean, he is the man who reached at some point that he didn't sleep for 70 days or something like this. And after 70 days, he simply collapsed. He fell asleep at the wheel of his car in the middle of Paris. And he woke up with a policeman knocking in his window because fortunately his foot got off the throttle and he just stopped in the middle of Paris traffic. But I mean, the man was not a crook. He was really a heavy working. Not everybody would have this thing of saying, okay, I will not sleep because I need more eight hours to work. He was a working machine. He was extraordinary in many ways. But at the same time, he was totally abusive when it came to stupidity. He could not stand stupidity. And uh, exactly like a good Persian Armenian merchant that he was, if you are stupid, you just have to pay through the nose, you know, he would charge you double or whatever, he had no scruples about it. And there is an episode, I told you the story because I wanted to describe the profile of this man to see what kind of person he was. Gurdjieff made millions in the currency of his time, like the turn of the 19th, 20th century, which meant huge amounts of money. He made millions in the currency of that time, he made different spiritual projects like institutes and so on. Some of them were lost, they got destroyed, the men started all over. He came to St. Petersburg from the Orient, he studied in Tibet and Central Asia and places. He came first time to St. Petersburg in Russia with millions, he made the Institute of Harmonious Development of Men, that's what he called it. And then the Russian Revolution came, so he had to run away because the Bolsheviks would not tolerate things like this. He ran to the Black Sea coast, in a few years the Bolshevik Revolution reached down there, so he had to move again. He left whatever he made there, he also bought a villa there, a place for it. He, ran, he had to run to Constantinopolis, to today Istanbul. He ran there, from there he emigrated to Berlin. From Berlin he moved to London after his disciple Uspensky. From London he moved to Paris, where he remained for the rest of his life. In each and every of these points where he moved, this man started from zero, with an amazing fortitude that me had just lost millions, and he said, okay, we can always start from zero, it's not a problem. You know, I have the power, I have the force to do this thing. 
So he also sometimes he borrowed loads of money from rich people that he knew. He always paid back his debts. He was a very correct person and so on. But one day, Gurdjieff was brought to the point where he did the unthinkable for a spiritual person as he wanted to be. And Gurdjieff was so honest about this, his vision on things, that he actually published himself this thing in his book, Meetings with Remarkable Men, which is a kind of autobiographic book. And in the final chapter, which is called The Material Problem, he describes how many problems he had all the time with money, with people not cooperating with. And this story is so illustrative because it infringes totally on Astea. George Gurdjieff, together with his people, they bought a property in the north of Paris in Fontainebleau. The school is still there today. It's the Gurdjieff Center in France in Paris. And that was a kind of an old manor, an old castle or something of the sort. And they had a center. And for this they had to, of course, borrow money from the bank. And they had to mortgage the place from the bank. And they were having to pay monthly a due to the bank. And that month, Gurdjieff simply did not have the money. He was short of some 3,000 francs in those days. And he simply couldn't afford to pay those money. He had borrowed money from anybody he knew. He was completely new in Paris. He had stretched himself to the limit. He didn't have 5 francs to put more on what he had. And then Gurdjieff had to choose. If he wouldn't pay by tomorrow at noon the dues to the bank, the bank would step in, confiscate the property, and put it onto an auction, sell it on forced auction. So basically Gurdjieff stood to lose everything just because of this stupid misfitting in some money. And then Gurdjieff did an unthinkable thing. He bought, he built a bird trap, because he knew to build all kind of funny things. He built a bird trap, he went into a park in Paris, he caught ten birds, ten normal sparrows, he took the birds and he took them home and he painted them in a special way and he glued some feathers on them so they looked like a rare tropical bird, which he knew, he knew a lot about birds apparently as well. And then next morning he went to the bird market and he sold them on a dumping price as being a rare tropical bird. And the snobs of course bought them and the guy got 3,000 francs and he ran to the bank and paid it. This is an example from a spiritual master who took an incredible responsibility. I mean, this is blatant theft. This man did a blatant crooked thing. And not only that he did it, but he admitted it freely. He even wrote it in the book. Basically, his philosophy was this. He thought on one hand, I am cheating some people who are having the money and who are snobbish for birds. And on one hand, I am standing to lose a spiritual school which will help generations after generations and might contribute a lot to the elevation of this country. So, George Gurdjieff thought that in the day of his death, when he will meet his maker, God will clap and will say, good job, George, you did what I would have done. You did a clever thing. You, it's true, you are forced to do a thing. Maybe you could compensate it afterwards. Now, we don't know really what happened when Gurdjieff met his maker, but the thing is that that was his philosophy. He thought he could take this responsibility. He knew he was infringing on a moral law and he said what the heck I'm going to do it because else the loss which I'm standing to have here not the material loss the loss in terms of spiritual investment of the project which was to be gone is much more so this is why I want to give you such limit examples examples of people who wouldn't take anything because it might be stolen or it would belong to another and Gurdjieff who uh, went to this length and that's what made him such a provocative person that he had this freedom, this inner freedom to take responsibility, not to play the game by rules made by others. 
he dared to do things on his own responsibility. Now I would like to tell you a parenthesis here. In the three days until now, I described you beautiful moral things about non-violence, truthfulness, and non-theft, which anybody would admit is a healthy thing, after all, even by normal social standards. And I also described to you exaggerations, absurdities, and as well exceptions, like exceptional cases. I would like to draw a line and to tell you once more, exceptions are just that, they are exceptions, they are meant to be exceptions. There are not many people of you who will have to save a life or who will have to stop a war like Krishna did or who will have to save a spiritual school from disappearance like Gurdjieff did. Those things happen to exceptional people in exceptional situations like once in a lifetime or something like this. That's why exceptions strengthen the rule. If you want to see what the thought about it is, let's turn to a saying of Jesus which is not recorded in the official Bible but which comes from the Gospel of Thomas which the official church today does not recognize as being because it was not censored properly by the church in its own time. So the Gospel of Thomas contains an incredible episode where Jesus, you know, Jesus was famed in his time as being a bit of a libertine. He didn't observe the Sabbath as all Orthodox Jews did. He didn't wash his hands or his pupils didn't wash his hands. At some point they entered in the temple and they took the offerings from the temple and they ate them because they were hungry. And Jesus all the time said, look, these rules are stupid, you know, and you can do it in another way as well. You don't, you shouldn't be bound by just some dead rules and so on. And this confused people and they proclaimed him a kind of revolutionary troublemaker. Well, the same Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas, exactly after he does this thing with the Sabbath and so on, <clears throat> he is walking in a field. And in the field is the Sabbath day again, and the man is plowing his land. Well, Orthodox Jews were not supposed to do agricultural work on Saturday on the Sabbath day, because it was the day when they should rest and think about the holy things. So basically, there is a man who does exactly what Jesus did. That means he does things during the Sabbath, ignoring this common religious law. And then Jesus tells him a magnificent word, which you should perhaps remember, because it brings this parenthesis to spiritual things and exceptions. Jesus tells to this man in front of everybody else, if you know what you do, then you are blessed. But if you don't know what you do, then you are just a criminal and you are breaking the religious law. If you know what you do, that means you are breaking a law. But you know that you are breaking it and yet you do it deliberately knowing what you do. That means you are not a human anymore, you are superhuman. You have raised above the norms of the people, you have taken responsibility and you know, but still you think, with good reasons, hopefully you know what you do, with common sense, you think that you will get away with it because there is a superior reason which pushes you to do this. There is something at stake which is much bigger and which in front of the eyes of God will keep you clear. You will be able when you will face your maker to tell him I did this because of this and you know. And you will just receive applauses for it. But if you don't know what you are doing, that means you just woke up this morning with a big heart on and with a huge energy and say what the heck is habit but I have to finish my uh, agricultural work, I don't care and so on. Then you are just ruled by instincts and hormones and you don't know what you are doing and you are just a criminal. You do it just because it's, uh, you know, you woke up with too much energy and you couldn't stay quiet today. That's the thing. 
So basically the Romans had a little bit of the same proverb which is not very democratic and very politically correct. He says when the Romans said when there is a barrier on the road, you know like a railroad, but they didn't have railroad in those days, but a barrier. When they said when there is a barrier across the road, the cows stop in front of it, the dogs crawl under it and the lions jump over it. That means it's exactly the thing, you know, the cow is the common person, the dog is the lowly person who cheats the law but under, and the lion is the one who is above the law, and for him that, that obstacle does not exist. So in this way, uh, like it's not everybody is equal in front of the laws of the universe. That is why, please remember, there have been people in the history of this planet who have done a lot of funny things when they were great spiritual people. You cannot always imitate them unless you have got their spiritual level. Krishna did many funny things, but unless you are Krishna yourself, shouldn't try to imitate Krishna, because perhaps you don't know what he knew, and you cannot do what he did. That is the story with the exceptions. I'm showing you that these things are not like religious oaths and things, oh, and God, shall, God said thou shall not do this or that. It's things from yoga, it's common sense, it's practical things, but still, generally the yogis would go with them. To give you a beautiful ending of this, just to show you how scrupulous some people can be, not like the exception of Gurdjieff, I will tell you a beautiful story from the fathers of the desert, the great Christian mystics of the 5th century in Palestine, in Sinai, in those places. There is a beautiful story with one of them. It's supposed to be true. All of them are recorded as facts in the codicils of the monasteries there, but some of them are so far out that they sound more like legends. It's like it's difficult to believe that such people actually lived and did such things. One of these old men living out in the desert, one day near his hut, they are living alone, each one completely alone. Uh, one of them, there he sees a female hedgehog, I hope all of you know what the hedgehog is, this little animal with pins, yeah, which can turn itself into a ball. This is a female hedgehog, who is, which is coming with her cub, and the cub is blind. Its eyes are having a disease or something, so the cub, the hedgehog cub, is blind. And the mother hedgehog is simply dragging the little cub to the feet of the old man. And then the old man, taking it as a kind of sign, he says a prayer, he enters in one of his miraculous states, he says a prayer, and exactly like Jesus, he takes some dust from the ground, spits some of his saliva, anoints the eyes of the little animal, and prays over it. And says the story, the little hedgehog opened eyes and could see. The result of it is that the mother hedgehog got very happy, took the cub and she went with him, like dancing with joy, you know, like leaping with joy, because of this, you know, because for an animal, a human being is like a god. It's like, you know, animals aspire to become human beings. Human beings aspire to become Buddhas and gods, but animals aspire to be human beings. And it is said that sometimes human beings are cruel gods to animals, instead of being beneficial, peaceful gods to animals and giving them compassion. Actually, human beings sometimes treat animals horribly and like not like this man, you know, this animal came with full faith to this human being, like you are bigger than me, you are wiser than me, help my little cub or something. And the old man did. And the story continues in a beautiful way. The next day, the female hedgehog comes again, dragging a big cabbage after her, like, you know, she would like to give a present to the old man. 
And the old man looks at the female cabbage bringing the, according to her own understanding, that was the maximum gratitude, like to give some juicy food in the middle of the desert. And the old man shakes his head and he said, where did you get this cabbage? He speaks to the animal like the animal can understand. He says, where did you get this cabbage? He said, because in the desert they are not growing any cabbages, so this must be taken from somebody's garden. So he said, but you should know that I'm never eating anything which is stolen. This is stolen property, so get ashamed and take it back from where you took it from. And says the legend, the animal dragged ashamed the cabbage away. This is a beautiful childlike story, a legend-like thing, which shows exactly the beauty of, this, of the soul of such a human being, right? This man was indeed a perfected human being in this way. He had helped an animal, and you could say, what a beautiful story. He helped the cub, and the hedgehog brought him a cabbage. What a beautiful story of brotherhood of man and animal. But no, this man was above it. When the cabbage was brought, he thought, well, this is stolen, even from an animal. You know, the animal doesn't know, but I do know that it is stolen. So he said, take it back, you know, be ashamed. Even if you are an animal, you should learn something today from me. Just take it back. Uh, the thing is, therefore, very clear. Non-theft is non-theft. The yogis say a world without theft would be much better. The thing here is obvious. The yogis consider not only the karmic things. The yogis consider that theft is coming from envy. You have something which I don't have and I want what is yours. But the yogis say, what a small view this is. What a small vision of the world this is. Because it's like, I am getting happy only if I'm getting what you have. But we live in an infinite universe. In this universe, I can get what I need without taking it from you. The universe can give it to me. It's like living in a cup of tea, you know, like living in such a small universe that we are just, and only what's here is here. But the yogis say, think there is a great universe out there. Why do you need the money of Michael? The universe can give you your money, which is neither Michael's nor nobody's, provided you ask for it, provided you do something for it. So why should you try to steal from someone else? It's such a small vision, it's basically an envy, right? That uh, if I don't have a goat, let the goat of the neighbor also die. This is better and I want this and so on. Why can't you just interact with the universe and get what you need? This vision is again is very limitative and the yogis say this is not giving you peace in meditation. The person who cannot meditate because somebody else has what you don't have and you need to have to get theirs to be yours, this is a pain, it's simply like an endless envy, an endless desire. I think it was a Western philosopher who said, the one who is truly rich is the one who is poor in desires. Because if the desire is there, as much as you have, you never have enough. Even Alexander the Great, who ran half of the world, he was unhappy and he died unhappy. Because the one who has a one-room apartment wants two-room apartment, the one who has two-room apartment wants three-room apartment, the one who has three-room apartment wants a villa, the one who has a villa wants a palace, the one who is a mayor wants to be the president, the one who is the king wants to be an emperor. Everybody wants more, 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 more. Desire has no rest. And it is the same thing here. Basically, it's not the problem that you take. That's a karmic, simple thing. But the problem is that you have a desire and this desire is so blind that it doesn't even let you understand that you could get from the universe. Why should you take from somebody else? You need something? Well, work. Use your mind. Use your intelligence. 
do yoga things and get it from the universe. There is no need to deprive anything of something. There is always a grand solution, a big picture, and you should be able to see this big picture. That is the problem with it, that theft is actually the generator of a very small mentality. That's why people confronted with it, sometimes they can liberate themselves. It is a common thing in spirituality to claim both in Buddhism, in India, in the Western culture, that many famous thieves became saints at some point. Because when they realized that what they did was so absurd that they were living in such a small place, then suddenly they could let go very easily. And to conclude, I will tell you what Patanjali says, the great yogi Patanjali, in his Yoga Sutra, he says, by the perfection of the practice of Asteya, like non-theft, all the richness of the world comes to that person. This is expressed in Sanskrit in such a way that it's a very mysterious sentence which can be interpreted or has been interpreted in history in three distinct ways. The first is pretty clear. If you don't grab, then the universe gives to you whatever you need and when you need. This was the preferred opinion of Swami Shivananda, the great yogi of Rishikesh, Swami Shivananda always was on the verge of bankruptcy. He never cared about this thing. I mean, he wrote books or he didn't, he did what he did. He was always on the verge of bankruptcy. He said, if I'm having some money, I'll start a printing press. If I'm having some money, I'll start a kitchen for the poor. If I'm having some money, I'm starting a yoga hospital for the eyes. Whatever. And sometimes it was so desperate that one of his pupils, Swami Satchitananda, even tells that one day they really didn't have anything left anymore. The whole ashram was empty, there was no food, there was not even anything. And then the disciples, they talked with each other in the night, and they said, let's go tomorrow morning, let's wake up one hour early, let's wake up four o'clock or something, and go in the village nearby and beg our own food, because the old man... He was not that old, but anyhow, the old man, Shivananda, is worried about what will we eat tomorrow. And let's not give him this worry, because he is such a wonderful person. Let's relieve him of this worry. We go and beg our food tomorrow, and he doesn't have to worry about this. So exactly when they are about to leave in the morning, there comes a track with a lot of flour and so on, because one of the disciples of Shivananda from town was a baker. And he thought in that morning, I had some extra flour and so on, I would like to donate some of it. So in that day, they had nothing to eat but chapatis. They could just make chapatis, but at least everybody ate like this. So Shivananda was always like this. In the last moment, when everything seemed to be lost, there came a donation, there came some money, there came some food, there came something. Always, when you look at the work of Shivananda, his early books and everything, it's beautiful. On each book it says, this book was printed by the generous donation of 3,000 rupees by retired army captain, Mr. Blah, Blah, Blah. Uh, you look at some kutias, some huts for living. This hut was built by the generous donation of 5,000 rupees by the family, I don't know whom. You go to the yoga hospital, to the eye hospital. This eye hospital was built with a generous donation of 50,000 rupees by the Maharaja of Mysore and so on. That means basically everything was coming like from heaven. This man never asked anything from anybody. He never worked for it or he never tried to steal or anything. He lived at the mercy of the elements and said, God, you know who I am and what I am. If you want me to die, I die. It's as simple as that, you know. I'm not going to take anything from anybody. And funny enough, the nature sent him. He always got, eventually he built a printing press. He built an ashram, a whole ashram. He built a small university. He built uh, 
hospital for different diseases and the eyes. He built a colony for lepers. He built uh, all kinds of things in other parts of India. Funny enough, he never needed to steal and he believed very much in this thing. That if you don't try to take it away from people, nature will take care of you. It's like you are a confident child who, who surrenders, who gives himself in the hands of the universe and says, okay, I shall not grab, you give me. The second interpretation, I've met a couple of yogic translators who said that this sentence from Yoga Sutra means that people who give up stealing, if they scrupulously refrain from it, they get a kind of paranormal feeling of material value, and because of this they can discover, for example, treasures, like they can feel there is some money buried there or something. Uh, This is a very seldom interpretation, but I found two or three translators who translated it that way. And finally, the third interpretation of this mysterious verse from Patanjali says that people who practice Asteya, they get a kind of feeling of the material value in money and everything, and even on other people. This was the preferred interpretation of the old Sai Baba, the Shridi Sai Baba from a hundred years ago, who was supposed to be a very poor man, a kind of fakir, Nobody knew if he was Muslim or Hindu. He lived in a mosque, but apparently he was a Hindu, and so on. He didn't care about distinctions of caste, religion, whatever. And this Sridi Sai Baba had some incredible capacities. For example, when people would visit him, suddenly in the middle of the talk about all kinds of spiritual things, he would sit and look at the roof and he say, Wow, the roof of our mosque got destroyed badly by the monsoon we need to fix it because else it will go down completely. He said, I think the carpenter will need 175 rupees to fix that roof. And while he said so, the person to whom he talked had precisely 175 rupees in the pocket. He did that many times. Like this man had an uncanny way of feeling exactly the financial value of the person in front of him. And people, when they are confronted in this way, they usually immediately took it out and they said, okay, I got the message, here is the money, you know. Because they said it's impossible that this man should know what I have in my pocket, you know, and what what I am able to donate. And surprised both by the holiness and the simplicity of this man, who was totally living poor and simple, but also by the fact that he could read them in this way, the people are donating. These are the three interpretations, and this is a story about Asteya. If you want to ask me questions, you will ask me questions in the end of this lecture. Read the papers of today and meditate on it. What is the story about theft, misappropriation, and all the other things which I have spoken? This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.